Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We start today by ending a series that we began several weeks ago that has carried us all the way through the summer, a series on prayer. A series in which Jesus, in Matthew 6, has been teaching us how to pray. A series in which he told us, pray in this way. And we've already seen what it looks like to pray for the glory of God. What does it look like to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, that, that prayer that is effective, we have already learned, is prayer that first doesn't look at me and my needs and what's going on in my life, but first looks at the living God and reminds me of who he is so that whether my prayers get answered in the way that I want or not, I am anchored to something that is bigger than me. Prayer for the glory of God. With that confidence, we then learned what it looks like to pray for the provision of God. That he, he supplies my heartbeat, the blood going through my veins, the air coming in and going out of my lungs. He will supply what I need to eat. Jesus reminds us not to be concerned about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or how we will clothe ourselves or, or any of those kinds of things, but to seek first the kingdom which is another way, again, of prayer for the glory of God, having that first and foremost, that's at the top of my priority list. And if I will put that at the top of my priority list, God will provide everything. So what it, that's actually, as we learned, what it sounds like to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And then we learned what it sounds like when we actually legitimately, sincerely pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. We also have learned about the evidence of a forgiven heart, forgiven people, forgive people as we have forgiven others of their debts. Well, today we conclude Jesus' model prayer by asking this, what does it mean to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? What's that mean exactly? What does that mean? The spirit of this, and I think even of James' message, is that we look to God for protection. Now, all of us at some point or another have prayed for God's protection, haven't we? Uh, sometimes when there's a near miss on the interstate highway. Ever been on a bumpy airplane? I've been on innumerable airplane rides in my, in my life and in my ministry, and, and one of the things I learned was to look at the flight attendant. Because if I'm getting nervous, well, that really doesn't mean anything because I don't fly as often as he or she does, but he or she is in that jumper seat facing me. So if I'm on the aircraft and I sense some bumpiness and I think, are we about to go down? Is something about to happen? Then I look up at the flight attendant and if she's just, then I'm cool, right? Now, if she's on the phone and her eyes are wide, I mean, now I start freaking out. And you know what else I've done in moments like that? Prayed. Yeah, you pray in a moment like that. All of us have prayed for protection. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, this past Sunday, uh, we prayed for protection for our oldest son who went back to college. They're doing some wonderful things up there. I, we think they're mitigating well, but Lord, would you protect that campus from infection? Would you protect our son from sickness? Would you protect him? Those of you who've got teenage drivers know how this works. As he's on the road from here to there, because that's probably more dangerous than COVID. Amen. 
And, and so we pray for protection from, from all of these things. Jesus' prayer for protection in this phrase reminds us that often the thing we need protection from the most is ourselves. And, it, and it, the number, with the number of times I've said, God, protect me so that this plane doesn't go down. God, protect my family so that we can be safe and safely arrive at our destination. Protect my family and keep us in good health. Uh, those things, I don't know exactly, but it's probably far less the number of times that I have prayed, God, protect me from me. Protect me from myself. Because the thing I need protection most from, according to Christ, is temptation. There's a story about a minister who double parked in a major city, had to get somewhere, probably make a hospital visit or something, and, and, and he left a note under his windshield. Dear officer, I have circled this block 10 times, and if I don't park here, I'm going to be late to my appointment. Forgive us our debts. When he came back, there was a ticket. And another note from a police officer. Dear pastor, I've been patrolling this block for 10 years, and if I don't give you this ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. That's the way a lot of us view temptation, isn't it? I, I, even if we pray, don't lead me there. How many times have I done that with my mouth and, and simultaneously while I'm walking in the direction of temptation? God, don't let me sin. Don't let me do this. Don't let me do that. As I'm walking toward the very thing that's going to that's gonna lead me there. Recovery experts call that middle circle activity. It's not stuff that's inherently sinful or destructive, but it's that kind of activity that you know, if you, particularly if you've got an addiction, every time you go to that place, every time you do that thing, it's, it's inevitably going to lead you into that center circle, that addictive, that harmful activity. So I, I, I pray, lead me not into temptation as I walk aimlessly through the center, through the middle circle, if you will. I need protection from myself. You need protection from yourself. Here's the good news. God is a place of refuge. God is our refuge and our strength. But while we pray, we must act. We've seen this before too, haven't we, in this, in this series. Give us this day our daily bread. We should pray for God to provide. We should rely solely and exclusively on God to provide, but we should do so while simultaneously acting in a way that leverages what he's already provided, which is why we know, because we have common sense, that it's foolish to ask God to give you a job if you're not filling out any applications, to ask God to heal your marriage if you're not doing your part as a spouse to correct the dysfunctional behaviors that have contributed to the place where you are. We know that this is true with forgiveness because we saw this in the last couple of weeks before my family and I left on vacation that forgiven people, truly forgiven people, forgive people. And so as I ask for forgiveness, I am simultaneously extending, I have become the conduit of God's forgiveness to other people. So how do you act while you pray? Lead us not into temptation. Let me give you four steps. Number one, refuse to be arrogant James chapter 4, this, by the way, is Jesus' baby brother, all right? Grew up in the same house with him. So if you have older brother issues, you ain't got nothing, okay? Because you didn't grow up with Jesus as your older brother. But this is what he says in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. Now, James, in, in saying this, is actually standing on the wisdom literature. We actually read in Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. All right, favor there in the Hebrew actually means the same thing that James means. It, it's the word grace. Now, every human being that's ever lived in, in the history of humanity has benefited from the grace of God in some way. Theologians call this common grace. Everybody gets some. In the intellectual realm, that means that whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you are good or evil as the world perceives you, uh, all human beings have the capacity to think, to invent, to solve problems, to cure diseases. In the physical realm, all people, regardless of what they believe or how they behave, can have good health. They can live long lives. Scripture reminds us that both the just and the unjust are recipients of God's goodness in all of these ways. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 5, God brings the sun up every morning on good people and on evil people. Rain comes down just like it did yesterday, and it watered our crops. And there are going to be good and evil who are going to eat those crops. Both the heroic first responder that went out on that call last night and the terrorist that hides out and is plotting against our nation even now are going to have their thirst quenched because of the rain, at least in part, that came down last night. That's common grace. But James is talking about a different kind of grace here. It's a greater grace that's given to every person who comes to Jesus in faith. And what characterizes this saving grace is humility. And it's in the context of that reality that he says God opposes the proud, the arrogant, the people who think they are better than others, the people who think they can make it on their own, the people who are always nitpicking and critiquing everybody else but never themselves people who have more confidence in themselves than they really ought to have, that kind of, the, of, of behavior is the chief evidence that you have not received God's saving grace. And the result of that is, James says, God opposes you. He resists you. That's, that's frightening to me, especially when I think about our culture. It's amazing how, we, how every civilization defines terms like, like progress. And, and for us, it's been generally it's generally coincided with the advent of, of technology, hasn't it? Think about the technological progress that, that we have witnessed just in the last 100 years. You can now get on an airplane right after eating an early breakfast and fly to the West Coast, and due to the time change, it is theoretically possible to get to the West Coast and land and be able to eat what our Hobbit friends called second breakfast. All right, some of you Lord of the Rings fans will get that. Five hours tops from sea to shining sea. We can do that now. That's a trip that even in these days in a car is going to take about four days, and that's minimum, and that's if you don't have kids in the back who have to stop to pee every 45 minutes. Four days. Before the advent of Eisenhower's interstate system, it took two weeks to make that trip in a car, six weeks minimum prior to the internal combustion engine. That's how far transportation alone has come just in the last 100 years, and that doesn't come close to the rapid speed of advance that we see technology taking us today. Just think about the, the rapid speed of vaccine development right now. And I know some of you are like me. Patience is not one of your better virtues, and you're like, what speed? Where is this thing? But keep in mind, this is a virus that nine months ago no one even knew existed, and now we're in trial phase? 
We're, there, there are companies that are, that are looking for other companies to help them distribute this thing if actually the tests come out well. Just the rapid speed, even if we have to wait several more months for this, think about the medical knowledge we have acquired and the unbelievably rapid pace of discovery and development. The mortality rate for this thing has gone down because we found ways to treat it that we didn't know existed even three months ago. I'm thankful for these kinds of advances. But there's a danger. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in transportation. There's a danger in communications in that we can become a proud people who think we can somehow make it apart from God. Our overconfidence in our own abilities is scary sometimes, especially when we read passages like this and we're reminded God opposes the overconfident. Grace is for the humble, and it is exclusively for the humble. There's a story about this man named Bill, really small guy, about five foot six, weighed no more than about a buck and a half. He died one night. He went to heaven. He was greeted by an angel, and in the course of being admitted into heaven, the angel asked him, tell me about the most significant moment of your life, the moment that you're most proud of. And he said, well, I came out of this convenience store, and I noticed this elderly lady getting attacked by this big burly guy. He was taking her purse, he was smacking her around, and I thought, this isn't right, this shouldn't happen, and in an adrenaline-driven moment, I walked over, I pushed over that motorcycle that he had rode up to the scene, and I said to stop it, and I immediately gave him an uppercut and started pounding away at his stomach as I was simultaneously yelling at that woman to run and to get to safety. And the angel said, well, that, wow, that was brave, that was heroic. When did that happen? And Bill said, about five minutes ago. <laughs> now, did he do the right thing? He, he did. He did. Sometimes doing the right thing will cost you your life. But arrogance and overconfidence, they can get you killed, can't they? James issues a similar warning here. When it comes to avoiding temptation, the most dangerous disposition I can have is this one. I got this. Never, ever, ever say, whether it's in regard to adultery or false teaching or unjust anger or any other temptation, I got this. Because God grants the grace to overcome only to those who recognize they don't got this. Refuse to be arrogant. And then once you have that right disposition, you're going to find it easier to refrain from accommodation. This is James continues in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So here's the application based on that previous truth. God opposes the proud. God give, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, you want God's grace? There's one way to get it. You submit yourself to him. And in submitting yourself to him, you will simultaneously resist the devil. There are two commands, but in reality, there, there are two sides to the same coin, and you can't have one without the other. You cannot resist the devil unless you submit yourself to to God. If you're in open rebellion against God, do not try to do spiritual warfare. You're going to get your butt whipped. Submit yourself to God, and if you're truly submitted to God, you will resist the devil. These two cannot be separated. But when you have them both, you become a person who no longer accommodates sin in your life. You're a child of God who stands firm who refuses to compromise. We get another look at this word resist in Ephesians. Take a look at Ephesians 6.16. Paul here, in, in the context of spiritual warfare, says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish, 
That's the word that James uses here for resist. It's exactly the same word. All the flaming darts of the evil one. The whole purpose of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is resistance. And with the grace of God, you can wear the armor of God. And with the armor of God, you can stand your ground against Satan and any temptation that he sends your way. Now, we all know what it's like to have an unwanted guest, don't we? We all know what it's like. I remember as a teenager when salespeople would still go door to door, whether they were selling Bibles or, or encyclopedias. In this particular story, the guy was selling a rainbow vacuum cleaner. And I remember getting close to 10 o'clock one night when my father looked at my mother and said, sweetie, we need to go to bed so this man can go home. There are different ways, isn't there, that you try to get rid of people that you don't want in your home anymore. I, I tell you what, if one of y'all can figure out how to get those car warranty people from calling me, okay, I was, and I know you guys understand, hundreds and hundreds of people in a church this size can't have my personal cell phone number, so why do the car warranty people have it? Right? I, I, but I got to screen that out, right? And so how do we do it? How do we do that? I saw a sign, somebody sent me a picture this several months ago, I think this was even pre-COVID, and it was, it was great, but it was this year, and it was a sign hanging on somebody's front door, and it said this, we've already found Jesus, we know who we're voting for in November, and we're not buying anything, so unless you're giving away free beer, go away. You ever felt like that? Like, this is what I want, I want to give, so we have figured out, have we not, in advance, ways to stop unwanted people, unwanted things from taking up our time. How many of you have got ring technology in your house right now? There's a few of you. Some of you are like, what is that? Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, it is. You can monitor your home from almost anywhere in the world that you have an internet connection. Everybody's phone now has caller ID. Some of you even have the means, and you've exercised that means to live in a gated community. Now, why do we do that stuff? It's because we first made up our minds that there's some things I don't want to give the time of day, and I'm just... Before the fact, I'm going to screen those things out of my life. You know what James is saying here? Treat temptation in exactly the same way. You've got to make up your mind before the fact. I am not going to accommodate this. Do it before the moment of trial. Don't, well, I'll see what happens when the choice presents itself. That's like somebody saying, well, I, I don't know if I need homeowner's insurance. You know, my house has never burned down. That's ridiculous. We would say, that's ridiculous. Why would you wait for the moment? If you're wise, you're proactive. And James says, be proactive when it comes to temptation. Make up your mind before you go to that secluded area with your date, before you sit down at the computer screen or use the private browsing feature on your phone, before you jump into the middle of that already 300-comment-long social media thread that you know has already gone crazy. Make up your mind before you get there, before you fill out your 1040 next April, now I'm meddling, before you sit down at a restaurant, now I've gotten personal, I wasn't in the best health a year ago, thanks to some really good doctors and, and, and a plan and, and, and even our, our elders who have been a great sense of accountability and support and prayer for me, uh, I'm, in, I'm in great health for my age and, and, I, and I'm grateful for that. But, you know, I have to stay in good health. And, and there's a side of me that if I, if I go to eat with you, 
or if I take a meeting with a staff member or something like that, we sit down in a restaurant, it's not because I, I'm, I'm naturally or conscientiously a glutton, but if, if we go down to Hecho in Mexico or somewhere else like this afternoon, and I just sit down and look at the menu, you know what I'm going to do? Oh, that looks good. I'll have that. You know what happens if somebody like me that eats out as much as I do does that at every meal? It's not going to end well. So you know what I've had to learn to do? I've had to learn to, when I set the appointment, I get on my phone, I go to the restaurant's website, and I find a healthy option. And if I have to snap a picture to remind myself that that's what I'm going to get, then that's what I do. But I pick out what I'm going to get before I get there when wait staff come. Do you want a menu? No. 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 Because I don't, I don't need the sopapilla. And, and if I see it on a menu, right? I don't need the fried ice cream, and I love me some fried ice cream, right? I don't need, what am I doing in order to stay healthy for my benefit, for the benefit of my wife and my children, for the benefit of a godly church that I have responsibility for serving and cannot do it if I am not in good health? I've got, I've got to recognize, man, there's something bigger here than me. There's something that I have to do before the fact. And, and that, yeah, that's a matter of temptation for me. What is it that you need to refuse to accommodate? You need to, you need to make up your mind beforehand. And then you need to make sure that you are continually in the presence of God. Because when James says, resist the devil, submit yourself to God, he then tells us how in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I love that verse. You draw near to God and here's a promise. He will draw near to to you. There's a reason that Jesus in his model prayer includes purposefully, lead us not into temptation. It's the same reason that his kid brother here spends so much time teaching us how to avoid it. It's because scripture doesn't hide the fact that temptation is attractive. Right? Satan doesn't tempt you with spinach. He tempts you with ice cream. Satan doesn't tempt you with ugly. He tempts you with beauty. Satan doesn't tempt you with poverty. He tempts you with wealth. You get how this works? Satan doesn't tempt you with weakness. He tempts you with power. Something to remember when you go into the voting booth. Not to tell you how to vote, but to tell you don't lose your ever-loving mind if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. These things are tempting. And so when James says, you avoid temptation by drawing near to God... He means you need to commune intimately with God. That includes the promise that God will return in kind. God will draw near to you. And you think about it, this is the God who created and sustains everything in the universe, who has invited us into intimate fellowship with him. James says, if you want to overcome stuff that's admittedly attractive to you, I mean, it, it, yeah, man, I love this. I may even be addicted to that. I, here's what you've got to do. You need to draw near to him who is, as a matter of fact, not perception, infinitely more beautiful, more attractive, more pleasurable than that other thing. And when you have done that, everything else will be seen for what it is, mundane and less than what you already have in Christ. Donald Barnhouse, the late pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, told the story of a, a friend of his. He had an old girlfriend show up at his door. Less than a year into his marriage, his bride wasn't at home. 
He said this woman made no attempt to hide her affection from the old flame. She talked and moved in a way that made it obvious to him, all I have to do is ask her inside. And as he stood there on the step, he made up his mind what he would do. He said, I pulled out my wallet and I went to my pictures. Now, this is in the 1980s when you actually did that, right? Today, you'd be pulling out your phone and going to your camera app and showing. But what did he say? He said, I showed her a picture of my wedding day. Then I showed her pictures of the two of us together, both prior to the wedding and after the wedding. I praised my wife, telling all kinds of stories of our love for each other until finally, after really less than about five minutes, this frustrated former girlfriend excused herself and never came back. And so the man concluded by telling his pastor this, in that moment of temptation, all the love between my wife and I was greater and more wonderful than ever, and I would have done nothing in that moment to spoil that love. See, what did he do? He turned his heart back where it belonged, didn't it? Right? And in marriage, we're taught this, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe there's somebody tempted by the attractiveness right now in the middle of COVID and your sex life's on the skids because you're about to kill each other and your kids won't leave the house because they couldn't and all these other things are happening and you, you, you fired up something. Maybe there's a social media relationship with an old girlfriend or boyfriend and man, that temptation is there and what am I going to do? Well, you give your heart back to where it belongs. That's what you do. Your body, your soul, your brain, your wallet, everything you have belongs to that person that you gave your life to, and you don't have the right to give that third person the right to steal from your spouse. That's what you do. But when this guy turns his heart back where it belongs, what did it do? It made this otherwise attractive temptation neither attractive nor tempting. Not anymore. God will give you and me the power and the strength to overcome this. James tells us this is what the presence of God will do in your life. So draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And then you can do something else. See, before this happens, you, you really can't do this last thing. Because without that overwhelming beauty and presence of God, this, this, this last thing is just work salvation. That's, that's all that it is. Look at the latter part of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay? Remember, this is the, the second part of one verse. So the first part was draw near. Well, now we're being told how you stay near. How do you stay near to God? And we're reminded that the grounds of all genuine communion with God starts with conformity to the will of God. I have to know what he wants from me. I have to do what he has told me to do. And so there's a command, first to wash your hands. Now, James Jewish readers would have been a lot more familiar with that, that imagery than, than you and I would. That was a reference to the ritual washing of the, the Levitical priest, Leviticus 16. And it pointed toward the pure heart that God demands. Jesus will remind us in Matthew 5, 8. This is one of the texts we're going to look at in our Blessed series this fall. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're pure in heart, and we're going to talk about what that means in the coming weeks, you're going to get a privilege that Moses, while he walked this earth, did not get to see. You know what God said to Moses? When Moses says, I just want to see your face, God said, no one can see me and live. Jesus comes along in a new covenant and says, those who are pure in heart will do something Moses never got to do. They will see God. But in order to do that, well, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, the biblical term for this is holiness. Holiness. And scripture teaches that God's people 
are to be holy, set apart, different from the world. I'll talk about that next week. Hope for an election year means, in part, that you and I, as the body of Christ, are that city set on a hill that Jesus talked about. The way I would describe that in the modern world is that we, as covenant, are a city within the city, and we are modeling a better way to move forward. That means, when it comes to our political rhetoric, we have different discussions than the world has. All right? if, if the rhetoric you're using is indistinguishable from CNN and Fox News, you're not following Jesus. More's coming next week. We're to be holy, set apart, different. Hey, there's a lot of churches don't even talk about this anymore. Because, I mean, people get up and walk out. I don't want to hear about that. I just want to live however I want to live. I don't want to hear about holiness. But there are just as many congregations that aren't clear on what this means to be holy. I mean, what, what images come to your mind when you think of the word holiness? What is it? Yeah, particularly if you're new to the faith or you're still, you know, kind of pre-Christian, you're wondering, what, what am I, I don't even know what to think about this faith. You, you hear the word holiness, a lot of people, they immediately, long robes, stone walls, no jokes, no sex, cold baths, stained glass, early rising, weekly fasting. For most unchurched people, this is the picture, and it's largely the responsibility of a church that has defined holiness in a way that is not in concurrence with what Scripture teaches about it and is simultaneously the last thing in the world anybody wants to be. Holiness is about being whole. Holiness is about becoming everything that God intended us to be in Christ. And so James commands us, renew your allegiance to God. Stop being double-minded. That word describes a double loyalty. I was 18 years old. My team had just won the state championship, high school football. The first team in my state, in the history of my state, to go 15-0 and in winning that championship. I got a ring. It actually looked like a Super Bowl ring. It's a little ridiculous for a high school student, but they did it for us. And I got asked to come and speak at my church to a group of young boys about what it means to be a champion and a victor and what it means to be a champion for Jesus. And I, I mean, for an 18-year-old, it probably wasn't bad. I mean, those kind of things weren't podcasts back in 1989, but it, it, it probably wasn't bad. I probably did about as good as anything you've heard at the average FCA meeting. And I, I talked to those young boys. They, they wanted to see the ring. It doesn't fit me anymore. My fingers got fatter. But they, they, they got to look up to this guy who supposedly followed Jesus. And then, and then I went home and I packed. And the next morning I got on a bus with my senior class. I drove to Miami. I got on a cruise ship and I got drunk. Your pastor in that moment, you, and for those of you who've been around Covenant for a long time, you, you know this. I've said this repeatedly. There is a world of difference between a man of God and a church boy. And you don't always see the difference when you're sitting in church. Your pastor at that moment in his life was a church boy. That's all I was. That's all I was. And the reason was because I was double-minded. I was exactly in that moment in my life what James warns us against in that moment. I had a divided loyalty. I was trying to keep one foot in the kingdom and another foot in the world. James says, if you, if you want to avoid temptation, you've you got to stop that. You want to be a whole person. 
The way to get there is cleanse your hands, purify your heart. Get the fence post out of your rear end, stop playing games with God, and get serious about your commitment to him. And our prayer lives should be focused on asking him to help us develop that character in our lives. We've got to renew our allegiance to him. I'm going to draw near to you because you're infinitely more beautiful than those other things that without you are certainly attractive. And having done that, I'm going to plant my flag in the ground. This is where my allegiance lies. This is where it lies. Robert Spear tells a story about an old sculptor who was cutting a figure that was to stand in the niche of a wall so that his back would never be seen. And yet there that sculptor was, working with painstaking detail on the backside of that sculptor. And someone asked, why are you working so hard on the back? Nobody's ever going to see that. And the sculptor simply replied, God will. God will. Do, do you live like that? Do I, do I always live like that? We spend a high percentage of our spiritual lives facing and fighting temptation, don't we? For some of you, it may be sex. For some of you, it may be substance. For some of you, it may be anger. For some of you, it may be relationship and the way you respond. For some of you, it may be the way you behave and conduct yourself on social media. Whatever it is, you spend a good part of your life going, internally, you can feel it on the inside. If you're a follower of Jesus, these can be the moments when you build the character of God in yourself. If you don't follow Jesus, these can be the kind of moments that reveal how helpless you are without him. And this could be the day that you give your life completely and solely over to him. But God knows your motives. And moreover, and this is the good news, God wants you to win. You hear me, church? God wants you to win. He wants you to beat this, to get over it, to not be enslaved to it. And one way to fight it, know that he's always looking. And be so close to him that it would be unthinkable to you to do anything that is disappointing to him. You want to be that close? You must pray. And you must pray in a way that is effective and powerful. I said at the outset of this series, so many believers are intimidated by prayer. We've already learned, have we not? Prayer that is effective and powerful and changes you from the inside out and changes the world around you, this is what it looks like. You want to be close to God? You want to fight temptation? You want to put God at the center? You want to notice a profound peel of a paint off the walls? Powerful difference in your prayer life over these coming days. This is what you must do. Pray that the glory of God might be preeminent and at the top of your wish list. Pray that God alone would be seen as the provider for you and for everything you need. Pray knowing that God and God alone is the source of forgiveness and that through you, the conduit, there can be forgiveness extended to others. Pray for protection from evil knowing that even your own heart and mind are prone, as the old hymn writer used to say, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. That's what James is telling us to do. Take and seal it for your courts above. Because I know my own propensity to go in precisely the opposite direction. And to do that, you have to pray in this way. Will you join me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, may that be more than just something that's recited from our lips. May our hearts be filled with its meaning and purpose. May the men and women before me, the men and women watching from home right now, be empowered beyond what they ever thought possible in their communion with you. Lord, recognizing that first it must change us, and then through us, the world can be changed. Father, how we now need people of prayer, but not just people who pray, people who will pray as you have instructed us to pray. And so, God, give us the grace as an entire church body to pray in this way. And I make this prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.